We need the whole counsel of God. Um, it's word and deed together. It will always be. And anyone who says anything else is actually not taking on board the whole counsel of God. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Emma Fowle. The Profile is a show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, their faith and their ministry. It's brought to you in association with Premier Christianity, the UK's leading Christian magazine. The monthly title features more interviews just like this one, as well as all of the latest news, reviews, columnists and much, much more. Plus, there's great new digital content uploaded daily to our website, premierchristianity.com. To get full access wherever you are in the world, there are print and digital subscription options to suit you. Get the magazine delivered directly to your door or access all of the latest content via your computer, your smartphone or the Premier Christianity app. Head over to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe for more information. On today's show, I'm speaking to Bishop Mike Royal. As well as praying for King Charles at his coronation, Mike Royal is the General Secretary of Churches Together in England. A founding trustee of educational charity Transforming Lives for Good, Mike has also been a minister, a street pastor, the joint CEO of Cinema Network and a mental health chaplain amongst many other leadership positions and accolades. In our time together today, we'll be chatting about his story, his passion for young people and church unity and how the church can combat celebrity culture. So, Mike, could you start just by telling us a little bit about your early life? What what was home life like for you? Have you have you always lived in a Christian home? Did you find Jesus at a particular point in your life? Um, yeah, I I was born in a Christian home. Um, my parents um, were first generation Windrush. They came to the um, United Kingdom in 1957 and 58. Um, they powerfully met Jesus kind of around about 1960, which is uh, roughly the time when they got married as well. And um, and so um, by the time I came along, actually, uh, they were quite mature in their Christian faith. And so uh, I've never known a life other um, than um, being committed uh, to to going to church. So so that's a little bit about my my own background. Cool. Um, and what was that like for you growing up? What, what style of church did you go to? Yeah, so we went to a sort of a classic Pentecostal church, the Apostolic Church UK, which is quite similar to an Elim or an AOG church. Um, I was brought up in the suburbs of London in in Purley, and um, so yeah, it was it was your your typical sort of um, sort of middle class suburban church, um, if you like. But um, it was in a region that was quite diverse. And so um, we also related to um, some of the churches further in in a, uh, in a city, London. Um, and so actually from a, an experiential point of view, my church experience was really diverse with people from backgrounds um, from all over the world, but particularly uh, from uh, West Africa and also the Caribbean, as well as here in the UK. And was that always a happy church experience for you? Were you one of those kids that just sort of grew up in a Christian home, always loved Jesus? Or was there a time where you sort of remember making a commitment of your own or perhaps struggling a little bit with with the expectations of what you were raised in? My own personal church life was was always a happy one. Um, very much, you know, I was committed to, you know, our, our, our Pentecostal congregation. Once a month, I was part of a, a scout group movement. So I would go to um, an Anglican church um, once a month where we'd be on parade as cubs and scouts. Um, and I think that was my first actual ecumenical experience uh, outside my own tradition. Uh, and my, my wife always says to me, you're a secret Anglican, really. And perhaps some of um, my, my love of liturgy um, and of the Anglican um, and Roman Catholic and Orthodox traditions was sown kind of in 
those years. But at a personal level, I actually came to faith at 14 and a half years old, um, where I just knew my life was going in the wrong direction and that I needed Jesus in my life. And one day at a conference in Wales, I put my hand up, I came forward, I knelt down and gave my life to Jesus. And I still remember that day, 31st of um, July 1982. So I'm one of those who can put a very specific date. And when I found faith for, my, for myself, and wasn't just picking, piggybacking on my parents' faith. Yeah, and that's a really important part of our journeys, really, isn't it? Especially for kids who are raised in Christian homes. I, I have the opposite story, but very similar. My parents weren't Christians, but I first went to church with with brownies. So similarly to you, just that was my first engagement with church, and I and I really loved it. And Fantastic. Begged my parents to take me around regularly, much to their amusement and slight <laughs> horror. I think at the time. <laughs> yeah, wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> And and I mean, Mike, looking through your CV, the the, the amount of organisations you've been involved with, the, the positions you've held, the things you've done, you're like truly, truly um, just such an experience and, and ecumenical member of the church, like you say. Um, tell me a little bit about your journey towards what, what you're doing now, because you're you're currently the general secretary of Churches Together. What does that involve? Because when I when I read that, that job title, I'm like, I don't know what a general secretary does. What what does what do you do at Churches Together? Um, so um, general secretary of Churches Together is uh, the chief executive um, of Churches Together in England. Churches Together in England um, brings um, 52 denominations, soon to be 54 actually, denominations together across England to work together um, in unity. Um, and, and it is actually the official instrument of the churches for ecumenical working and working together in unity. So our, our work is all about helping churches to a deeper understanding of each other's uh, traditions um, and also encouraging them to work together in unity, particularly um, for um, the common good, including uh, things like the Warm Welcome campaign, um, which we've recently had with the cost of living crisis. So, I mean, a, a very visual illustration of that, I have to ask you about this, is the King's coronation that you got to be part of recently. How was that? What was that like? Did you Would you ever have imagined at 14 and a half year old Mike when he first made a, a commitment to Jesus that all those years later you would be heading up this huge organisation that, that oversees 52 <laughs> denominations and that you would be present at an, a state event like the King's coronation? No, of course, as, 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 as a young boy, you, you never imagine that. And um, I, I think as a young boy, to be honest with you, you know, I got easily distracted. I kind of remember reading most of my reports was easily distracted. But I, I, I always felt that my parents' aspirations for me were, were greater than perhaps schools. And, and, and you know, my my primary school, I would say the aspirations for me were low, but also always when I came home, they were high. I think when I got into uh, secondary school and, and particularly um, my final high school, uh, Pearly High School for Boys was a really good school and they set high expectations. But I always came home to a father who was a deputy head teacher, um, a mother who was a homemaker and, and really... Um, strived for my best. In, in terms of uh, the coronation, um, it, it was a great honour to do the coronation. Um, and when you think in 1953 that the Cardinal um, Catholic um, Archbishop um, would have stood outside of the Abbey, to see in 2023 a coronation happening 70 years later, where you have an array of different church leaders, including Anglican, Catholic, free church tradition, um, Pentecostal um, and Orthodox, all um, represented, all delivering a blessing, as well as the um, involvement of other faith um, uh, traditions, um, then we see how far we've come as a nation over the last seven decades. 
And tell me why, as a Christian, you're so passionate about that. Why is it that we need to work together as denominations? I, I take really seriously um, the, the words of Jesus in John 17, that they all might be one, as I and the Father are one. Uh, and I think we should take that statement as seriously as we uh, take uh, the Ten Commandments, the Great Commission, or the Great Commandments. I, I, I do think that there is a call um, for us to take seriously working together. And actually, from my reading of scripture, it is a sign of the church's maturity in, in being able um, to work together in unity. The challenge comes, of course, um, when you are seeking to keep unity, even when there's profound disagreement. But actually, I think that it's a, a sign of the maturity of the church when it can do that. Yeah, and obviously at the moment we're in, we're in the middle of some some really heated debates around that, especially when you when we're touching on the areas of sexuality and gender and looking at everything that's happening in the in the Church of England. A lot of people would say, well, it's it's, it's vitally important actually that we know what we think about a certain doctrine and that we and we hold on and protect that truth. And then there's other people who would espouse a, a view that is more well, we have to continue to hold those relationships. How do we do that when when it comes to such tricky issues? Yeah, um, I mean, uh, the Church of England, you know, the tendency is for everyone to see that because that gets the immediate attention. But the truth is, um, most denominations in one way or another um, are having those conversations. Even our Pentecostal churches um, last year in August, CTE organised a, a human sexuality conference um, where we brought in speakers to address these issues. So, so right across the spectrum, um, in various forms, these, these conversations are happening. What I would say is, um, I would say a very helpful kind of tool for us is in ecumenism, what we call receptive ecumenism, where is you approach one another in dialogue, but you come with a sense of lack and you come with a desire to learn from one another and to be enriched by one another, not necessarily to change the view or the position that we hold, but for a deeper understanding um, as we journey together. And I would just encourage church leaders and churches to do that. It's possible to do that and also to hold a, a firm position in your own mind or in your own tradition um those two things are not mutually exclusive yeah so you, so really what you're talking about is is being uh, i guess humble and open enough to 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 be able to sort of say i don't have all the answers here and i and i genuinely want to listen to what what you want to say yeah humble and open enough but mature enough too you know uh, mature leaders are able to do that and so when uh, I see a reticence to do that, then, you know, I have to, to say, look, we, we really need to lean into this. What are the other big challenges, do you think, for the, for the church when it comes to unity at the moment? What, what are the things that, you know, you guys have been working on or that, or that you've experienced in your own life here in the UK that, that you're like, kind of, these are the big issues that if we really want to see an outpour in the Holy Spirit, we've had a lot of talk this year, haven't we, looking at things that have been happening over in Asbury um, about people saying these are the things we need to deal with if we want to see God moving again in, in, our, in our society. What are the big issues for you? I think that the church is never better than when it's working together, particularly around social action and social justice. I think that gives it great credibility um, in the public square. I've cut my, my own teeth kind of in that. You know, I, I spent the first 10, um, 12 years really of ministry in that kind of local church ministry in West Yorkshire and more lately here in the West Midlands. But um, what I really found was is that that drove me to beyond the four walls of the church, whether that be with transforming lives for good and working um, with children and young people excluded from school, uh, uh, leading the street pastors team in, in Birmingham from 2004 to 2008, 
listening, helping, caring in the community, or, or just my previous role with Cinema Network, which is about helping churches with their community engagement. For me, I think that when the church is a, a visible, positive presence in the community, then I think people are attracted by it. And so if the church is a warm hub and people come to um, a local congregation and they find a loving community who accepts them, who engages with them, who helps them with their isolation, who gives them that sort of mental health, health friendship support, then actually people who belong will be drawn to believe as well at their own pace, in their own time, in an appropriate manner. But that happens. And so I think, you know, social action, social justice, really important. One of the great things about social action is it is a really practical way for churches of different denominations to work together in a, in a location, isn't it? And um, I mean, I've seen that happen in my own town with things like the food bank. Um, and that it, sometimes an area that churches find it easier to be united around than, than other areas, isn't it? Yes. Yes. No, indeed. I think that, you know, most churches can unite around running a food bank. Most churches can, you know, rally around a street pastors team that will draw four or five churches together in a town um, or in a local community to work together. And um, and I think when when the public see that, they see that unity. Actually, Jesus says that unity is a sign that I love the world and um again going back to John 17 and so I think that's really really important and I think if people see that the church loves um the world they will be drawn to it and of course when people are drawn into the church then church renewal is much more likely and some of the revivals that you know we have seen in the past and even in the present quite often they are in part about being people being drawn to Jesus whether that's directly through the work of the Holy Spirit or through the outreach activities of that church. Let's get back to education. You mentioned earlier that your, your dad was a deputy headmaster, which is really interesting because a lot of your career has been spent doing things in and around education. So, and and you spoke as well about your own experience of sort of perhaps your your parents' expectations for what you could achieve being higher than than that from your your school. Why do you think that was? I, I do. I do think certainly in that kind of first generation of, of Jamaican people that came to the, the UK, um, they had high expectations of themselves and they had high expectations of their families. And um, and they weren't going to let issues of racism um, stop them achieving sort of what they achieved and and so from a very young age you know I can remember my dad and my mum saying to me Mike you're gonna have to work twice as hard to get to to where you you want to get to because the truth is is that we're living in a society where there is prejudice where there is racism and barriers are, are put up and and and, and so uh, they didn't just leave us high and dry but but actually supported us to do that. And I, I think that in there were the seeds, really, for um, the establishment of, of TLG as a charity. And so I'm one of the founding trustees of, of, of TLG, although um, some of its work started kind of way back in the early uh, 90s. But in the late 90s, when it became a charity, I, I was involved. And then from 2005 to 2016, I was national director with a specific brief of rolling out alternative education provision for children who didn't have the opportunity or the encouragement sometimes that I had kind of from my own home life. I think it's Victor Hugo who said that those who open a school close a prison. And that is so, still so true. Um, so many children who are excluded from school and my church still runs 
two alternative education centres, they end up being known to the police, being known to social services. And if there isn't in an, an intervention, then they end up in prison or worse, sadly, deceased. So tell us a little bit about the backstory to that. How did you get involved in that work? Yeah, it, really interesting. Um, I remember uh, when I was in pastoral ministry, I was National Youth Director um, with um, the Apostolic Church UK. And um, I can remember speaking at a conference. I was guest youth speaker at a conference in Denmark. And uh, I remember one of the Kansas City prophet um, was a, a guest speaker kind of one night. And um, and he pointed me out in the congregation. Now, I'm not sure whether he pointed me out because he heard from the Lord um, or because I was one of the few black faces surrounded by all these sort of blonde hair and blue eye kind of people kind of in Denmark. But once he spoke, and I knew absolutely he'd heard from the Lord. And he said, I, 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 I see thousands of young people, thousands upon thousands. And at that time, probably be about 1996, 97, you know, TLG was, was, was just something I connected to uh, because it was, you know, um, some youth work being run kind of down the road. I never knew that as TLG as a charity in its own right took shape, that, that actually that would be the fulfilment of that prophecy. But it certainly proved to be. And as I got involved, I think that word more and more became real to me. And, and there was a realisation that the fulfilment of that word would in part come um, through my involvement with Transforming Lives for Good. And, and what is it about working with young people that sort of really grabbed your heart then and, and, and spurred you into this, this work with TLG? I mean, just if you've lived in inner city areas and, you know, I've lived you know, significant parts of um, my life in London, in Birmingham. I, I, was, I was 10 years in, in West Yorkshire, kind of in a small town. But even there, we had a, a thriving a young people's work kind of in our church, both to young people in the congregation, but also to young people in the community. If you're in in any kind of urban area, then the, you know, the average age is just pretty young. Um, a statistic some time ago in Birmingham said that 40% of the population is under 25 years old. When you're living in that environment, you will be drawn into um, young people's work. But for anyone who's worked with young people, you just know um, that their energy and that their vitality for life um, really draws you in. And um, as a, an older person, if you can do anything to facilitate that, then that's a good thing. But where you see young people being denied, you know, um, basic rights like an education without being excluded from school, then absolutely you want to lean into that. And, and, and I wanted to lean into that, particularly as someone who had done well in education because of my own um, upbringing. So basically you could see that the reason, one of the reasons that you succeeded was because you had a stable home and parents who encouraged you and were interested in education and, and pushed you. And you could see that lack in other children's lives and you wanted to kind of help provide that for them too absolutely you know my own upbringing um is a significant reason why i am who i am and, and, and where i am today yeah and and i think reflecting on that that is something i think that the church does have to offer doesn't it because we often use this this um picture of the church as a family of a body of believers and and therefore quite often when we have people in our community that don't have positive experiences of family we can as a as a christian community step into that gap and say we we can we can fulfill some of those functions for you this is a safe space we can encourage you we can build you up we can try to provide some of those things in your life um 
How can, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? You were talking about your urban experience. I live in a really rural area, um, mm. but I grew up in on the outskirts of London, so I've kind of experienced mm. both. But, but my reflection would be uh, the problems are no different. In, in some respects, they're kind of worse because yeah. we're rurally isolated. So whereas yeah. you know, for some of the kids in London, um, you can cycle or get the tube to x number of projects that exist within a mile radius of where you live where i live down in cornwall um there's nothing and there's no public transport and even if the kids do have the the get up and go to want to be involved in something it's it's 30 miles away in a location they can't possibly get to right across the uk i think we are facing these really difficult problems with our with our young people um what are some of the biggest challenges that you you see us facing today and, and how can we help as church yeah, I, I mean, I, I had, um, as I've said earlier, um, grew up in, you know, the suburbs of London. Um, I've, I've lived kind of in West Yorkshire in, in a uh, sort of a deindustrialized town, uh, Keithley, um, and um, spent time in, in, in Birmingham, now live in, in, in leafy Solihull. So I, I've, I've put it in the mix. And I would say that... Um, the, the, the experiences of children actually in those different areas are more similar than people think. Too many of us are living in a bubble and not hearing both sides of the world's important stories. It's time for a more rounded perspective. It's time to discover Premier Christianity. Balanced, confident, relevant, faith-filled. Discover fresh biblical perspectives as we bring you wide-ranging stories that impact the church. Discover the go-to source for Christian news. Subscribe at premierchristianity.com. Now only £5 for three months. I think that one of the big issues that a lot of children are facing is just poverty. Um, and and that kind of at, at home um, some things that people can really take for granted other people haven't got so for instance space to do your homework mm-hmm. you know some of the homes that you know our teachers have to visit you know children you know are, are, haven't got space just to put their books down on the table and to do homework because you know space in the house is such a premium and then poverty of aspiration. Many of the parents of these children um, have had a bad experience of school. Um, and, and so, you know, really uh, a struggle to be able to kind of guide their children kind of through their education. And to be honest, just need really good, good support. And we try to um, provide that. And those are issues in inner city areas. Um, as much as there are issues um, in, in pockets in rural areas um, a, a, and also pockets in suburban areas. So these are issues that are, are common right across the board. Perhaps what you get in urban areas is a, a density of population and therefore a concentration of those issues that then makes it more complex for those particular communities and for the agencies that seek to serve them yeah I I, I think I'd um, definitely agree um, I, d- I don't think from my experience of living in rural areas anyway that you get the same kind of uh, gang issues that I've I've seen in London but you do get you know we are now seeing the proliferation of county lines and, and that kind of stuff really yeah and and knife issues. I mean, not, not, you know, knifing now is as big a problem um, uh, in small towns as it is um, uh, in urban areas. And I think that we just, just kind of got to be very careful of, uh, in my opinion, of some of the media stereotypes that, for example, will say, well, you know, young people carrying knives um, is a black issue. It, it's not just the black issue that happens in the black community it happens in the asian community it happens in the white community and you look at some of the stabbings that have happened even in 2023 we can get examples several examples from each of those communities and and so um we just need to recognize this is a public health issue and until we deal with it as a public health issue and not just a criminal issue, then we will continue 
to to have um, these incidents that absolutely blight our communities and destroy the lives of families and young people. Yeah, and I think um, still, I mean, going back to your, your theme of unity and ecumenical working, I was having another conversation earlier on this week with um, uh, another with a black church leader who said, basically, we were talking about diversity in the church and how we create healthy, diverse churches. And he said, we need um, church leaders of all backgrounds, all races, all ethnicities to get stuck into the issues that affect their communities and affect our society equally and not mm. just ones that they perceive to be their problems. And he was specifically referencing knife crime and said, you know, exactly what you said, that it's often stereotypically assumed that that's a, an issue that affects the black community and therefore for white church leaders is not something we need to sort of get involved in but actually these are the type of things that as a church ecumenically as a whole that we can really really stand together and try to make a difference yeah absolutely I couldn't agree more uh, do, do churches together do that kind of campaigning is that part of your remit or um, we, we we will certainly work with churches um who are majoring on that or focusing on that so where there is a campaign or where there is some joined up working that is looking at a particular issue, we will certainly get kind of behind that. So a different issue, but for example, just this week, we, we're doing a little, um, um, our racial justice working group is doing a little bit of a, a collaboration with NCLF, which is the Black Church's sort of political sort of ecumenical kind of coming together. We're doing some work together on, on Black adoption because we know that the uh, adoption needs um, of Black children are higher than um, their white counterparts. Um, so, yeah, we will get behind what the, the church does, but we're very much kind of church-led kind of around um, these issues. Let's talk a little bit about exclusion. You mentioned it earlier that every, you feel that every child has a right to an education and they shouldn't be excluded. Are there, are there any circumstances where, you know, that, that it just isn't tenable that a child stays in mainstream education? Let's talk, uh, could you unpack that a little bit for me? Yeah, so so I'm not suggesting that that, that necessarily uh, the best place to educate every child is mainstream. Um, what I'm saying is, is that every child deserves an education. And most of the time that will be um, in mainstream for most children. For some children, they need a smaller setting um, where there's more one-to-one -one support and, and therefore an alternative education setting or a studio school might be more appropriate. And even sometimes with those children, perhaps a full school day, um, because of the trauma that perhaps they've been through at home or in life in general, means that actually um, part of the day they'll be supported from home and part of the day they'll attend school. And so what we need is education that's tailored to the needs of individual children. And from child to child, that will look slightly differently. And you're currently a, a school governor, you mentioned to me earlier. Yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah. Yeah. So our church runs two, two alternative education provision schools, um, both of which originally were, were TLG um, schools. And um, yeah, we have an incredible kind of staff team um, that are working um, with um, children um, from both urban and suburban kind of West Midlands context. And um, yeah, it, it's a beautiful thing to see, but, but also has its challenges because post pandemic, definitely um, children are struggling with their mental health, with isolation, uh, and it had a huge impact on the lives of children. And I think that in the years to come, we will more and more realise the huge impact that the pandemic had. I don't think that has fully unfolded as yet. Do you think we're we're still we're we're going to be witnessing the fallout from that for for some time to come? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. for decades to come, actually. Um, I, I I think that that happened um, within some children's lives at critical moments in their lives, and and its impact will be very long term. 
That's that's a very frightening thought, really, isn't it? Because I don't. I, I, do you do you think there's enough thinking being done around that at the moment? Are other people in charge of stuff? Re- I, they really got to I think. That. I think that if you're if you're in education and in school, you're you're very aware of it. Um, I think more broadly, when you look at politicians and decision makers, I, I think lots of them would just like to kind of put the pandemic kind of behind them uh, and perhaps focus on the econ- ec- economic fallout. But I think that the health and well-being um, and mental health fallout um, is, is huge. And we will be living with that impact for some time. And, you know, there's there's alternately a part of you that can sort of quite easily feel overwhelmed by that, isn't there? But there's 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 also a group of people, if you're slightly more optimistic, they'll say, do you know what? This is a really great opportunity for the church, like you've said before, to, for us to, to be the hands and feet in Jesus in our community and say, like, we can help. How, how can we get stuck into those problems? How can we come alongside people? Yeah, I, I, I always um, reflect on the life and ministry of Teresa of Calcutta, um, who was surrounded by needs, but never allowed herself to be overwhelmed by them. The key thing for me is, um, you know, what are people experiencing? You know, what is God doing? And how do we um, play our part and join in with what God's doing so that we can make a difference where um, where we see need. And, and that, for me, um, are just questions that we need to keep asking ourselves and to avoid a messianic complex that, you know, we're here to save the world. Jesus is the saviour of the world. He chooses to use his church as his hands and his feet. And what is it? What do you think God's doing at the moment? Is there anything that you guys are praying into as a team at the moment? Yeah, I think a couple of things. I, I think, I think, um, I think certainly I feel God is shaking up what church looks like. Um, I think some of the old models of kind of just, you know, um, lots of programs. I think there's a big question mark over that and churches needing to be, um, much um, more uh, focused on what they do and what they don't do, because I think that volunteers have less time now. Perhaps some people have retired post-pandemic. So I think there's that. I think that there's definitely a shake-up in terms of, you know, what church meeting looks like together. I hear lots of churches saying, well, you know, it's not all about Sunday now. I, I see some churches saying that actually a house group model um, is would be is really positive. I see some churches saying actually rather than meeting every week, we might meet every other week and meet in homes kind of in between. So I think there's there's lots of soul searching being done by leaders about how the church stays relevant for the future. Um, and how we work in a sustainable way. Um, and I think that can only be a good thing. Yeah. Did you did you guys see a lot of that sort of fallout from COVID? The, lots of people talked about pastors being really burnt out. Did you guys uh, see that? Oh, yeah, very, very much so. Yeah, very, very much so. Um, you know, some some pastors took the opportunity to retire. There was a lot of retirement that took place. Uh, during and immediately after um, the the um, pandemic, and of course, you know, some churches, you know, and many churches still have not returned to their pre-COVID numbers. That has impacted their finance, and then, of course, there is a question mark whether they have the resources to to keep um, their own full-time minister. So, yeah, I, I think again, we are still grappling kind of with some of that I think despite that it's been wonderful to see the church step up and work together again around things like the warm welcome campaign and uh, uh, food banks etc 
Mm. Yeah, I mean, in in some ways, it was very beautiful to see, wasn't it? We we actually, for the first time, maybe ever, had a lot of mainstream reporting on, on how much work the church was doing, and it really sort of pushed the social action work that the church contributes to society into the public eye in a really positive way, which doesn't always happen. And and like you said earlier, we need to really, really guard ourselves about creating some kind of messianic like feeling around that. With, yeah. But also, you know, it's, it, it is really nice when the church can step into those gaps and say, do you know what, we can, we can meet those needs. We can do what we believe God has asked us to do. Yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely right. The one thing I would say, though, is, is that when we're doing that, that we shouldn't miss the opportunity to share the reason why. And, and the reason why is because Jesus loves us. And he loves the world too. And I think that that shouldn't be lost. And that needs to be done in an appropriate way. You know, we should definitely not be doing social action with strings um, attached. But people who ask, what is motivating you to to do this? What motivates a street passer to be on the street at one o'clock in the morning? People want to know, are you crazy? Why are you out here for free? I think those are moments where, in a very appropriate way, there is a conversation that can be opened up uh, about why we do what we do. Yeah, definitely. And it's really nice to hear you say that because I, I, you often hear those two sides of the debate, don't you? People who are sort of very anchored to social action as the outworking of what the gospel tells us to do. And those people are like, no, we just need to tell people the gospel. Like, you know, this is the most important thing. Who cares whether they've got food? And and we do have to sometimes work a little bit harder than I think we should have to to bring those two together in a, in a way that, like you say, just answers that question. Why are you doing this? Yeah, I mean, the Bible says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, and I am with you always to the end of the earth. Um, it also says in James 2, um, that don't have someone sitting in your midst and tell them to be warm and fed um, uh, and not provide practically for their needs. We need the whole counsel of God. Um, it's word and deed together. It will always be. And anyone who says anything else is actually not taking on board the whole council of God. You've been in, a, you know, so many different positions of leadership in your career and, 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 you know, done some amazing things. Would you tell, would you tell us some of the highlights and then perhaps some of the lowlights? What's the biggest challenge you faced as a leader or the time that you've really had to wrestle with God for something? And, and what have been some of the real highlights where you've seen God do some really miraculous stuff? I think the, the biggest challenge is for me, Uh, generally in leadership, um, I would say that they've either involved people um, or or money. Um, uh, Money, when money is short in charities, and anyone who's been in charitable work will know that there are moments, you know, where funds are short and you have to make difficult decisions. And in, in all the charities I've been in, um, there has been to a larger or a lesser extent an experience of that. And, and then, of course, um, people, you know, uh, whether that be uh, moral failure or, or just people uh, in disagreement together um, and seeking to bring people together. Those are, are really tough moments in the life of any organisation. Mm. And I think that those are have been in my experience the most challenging yeah I mean let's talk about moral failures for a moment because that, that is never far from the public eye that is such a massive problem for the church at the moment and it and it is so heartbreaking mm. what would your advice be to to someone who's really struggling through that he's like I you know my mm. faith is literally feels like it's falling apart right now because this particular leader is I feel so heartbroken about what what's happened yeah, I mean, I can, I can, I can remember kind of during uh, my pastoral life, um, being in a church setting where I was not happy with the culture, and when I was leaving, I, I was one of the leaders who um and supported the calling of a meeting so that we could talk about the issues, and it was a very painful meeting. But I look back now on that, you know, nearly two decades ago, compared to 
what's going on today. And I said, well, I'm glad I did it because we were able to address those issues there and then. And I could then leave that organisation feeling that, well, I've, at least I've spoken out and I've named the issue. What's so sad about some of what we've recently seen is, is, is that this happened over many years and it, 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 no one had the guts to call it out. It's always tough to call out abuse of any kind, um, but it's really important that we do it in an appropriate way. Um, and we know with this stuff that it can come back to bite years and years later. And of course, over time, that damage just gets deeper and deeper. So how do we guard our own faith against that? How do we sort of, you know, as, as Christians, just keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, I guess? Yeah, I think I think accountability is really important. Genuine accountability, um, whereby um, we have um, systems and structures around us um, that can keep us in check. Uh, I think steering away from the cult of personality, I'm sad to say that there is too much cult of personality that I see generally in the church. And, um, and we do well much more to, um, to walk together in um, a healthy kind of respect for one another, um, but an openness an accountability and a vulnerability that allows us to call out particular behaviour kind of when we see it. Too often that stuff gets left, it gets put up with, and in the end it has a negative impact. Celebrity culture within within the Christian world is, is something that, that comes up quite regularly these days, isn't mm. it? There was a piece of research recently that said most of the re- most of the worship songs we sing in our Western churches come from four main four big mega churches in the States, of which you could probably name. Um not that it's a secret, but um, you know, that's that sort of idea of how you know, how do we create a healthy culture in our churches, in our festivals, in our youth events, in our everything that that doesn't put people on this pedestal but that does you know necessarily allow those that God has gifted to teach and preach and speak and lead to do it well but how do we, how do we do it well how do we do it healthily yeah I mean I, I think that you know that kind of leadership development needs to be built kind of into our, our seminaries so that leadership formation is something that we are really uh, focused on um um, but but also I I think that we need to create a much more reflective culture within leadership, mm. so people are reflecting on their own leadership. But actually, there's an opportunity for others to feedback to them on the impact of their leadership, whether that be positive or negative, and to do that in an honest way. And where that doesn't happen and you end up on the slippery slope and you end up with, you know, videos being posted from 10, 15 years ago where clearly people were behaving in manners that were inappropriate, but no one said anything. And do you have that? Do you have that in your life, Mike? Do you mind me asking? How do you manage it? Yeah. As a leader? Yeah, no, very much, very much I do. So I have um, leaders and friends um, they will visit every now and then. I will spend time with them where I'm able to speak honestly, you know, about some of uh, some of my challenges. But also I do spend a lot of time in personal reflection. Um, most mornings I will go for a walk and I will be reflecting on my ministry. And I'm really, really clear about the kind of um, leadership culture that I want to generate in any organisation that I lead and um uh, you know uh, and when I've seen something else uh, you know internally within an organization I've tried to challenge it um and you know if you look after people people will look after tasks that's mm-hmm. what I've always believed um and that's certainly kind of my mantra right now we need to look after um the people that we have entrusted to look after 
the various tasks of ministering kind of within a church or a parachurch setting. And what is the culture that you're trying to sort of grow within Churches Together right now? Yeah. So within my team, people first, that structures and systems kind of support people's ministry um, and the ministry of the church um, and not the other way around. Um, so, so that, I think, would be really important and a very relational culture. And um, by that, I mean healthy relationships between church leaders of different um, uh, denominations is really important. And, and the deepening of our relationships, the depth of our relationship will really be the litmus test as to how far we can genuinely travel together. Okay, just as we uh, wrap up, I, I want to um, project us 10 years into the future. We're going to be heading towards <laughs> 2033. We're getting older. What would your prayer be for the UK church? Or n- not even for the UK church. Let's go bigger. Let's go for the worldwide church. Yeah. Mm. You know, I spend some time in Ghana in West Africa. My, my wife is, um, is, is of Ghanaian heritage. Um, so I do have a global as well as a, a, a church of churches together in England um, perspective to see the church growing um, and making a genuine difference kind of in in its local communities. I, I think when push comes to shove, it is about impact of on, on local people's lives. And, you know, wherever I see the church, whether it be in Pakistan, and I've been to Pakistan and seen the church there, whether it be in Ghana or whether it be here in the UK, the best of the church is seen when um, people uh, open up the doors of the church, um, and I speak metaphorically as well as literally, and just embrace those um, who want to come in um, or who have needs that will be met as they engage and for me the more of that the the better you've been listening to the profile in association with premier christianity magazine Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.